Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You can find your seats. Good. You hear it? Everybody's rowdy this morning, enjoying the beautiful weather. Of course, it's Memorial Day weekend, and that is a time when we remember. We remember those who gave it all to preserve our freedoms in this country. And it is not something as Christians that we're unfamiliar with because our Savior gave it all to provide salvation to each and every one of us who cry out to him in faith. But we do remember those within our military and in our country, the patriots that have paid the ultimate price to preserve our freedoms. This morning we are in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, this really is the apex, the highlight of the entire study in this series. And yet we've been talking so much about it leading up to this that while definitely not anticlimactic, it shouldn't come as a surprise to know that this is the moment where Christ returns in this vision and where he brings his judgment on the earth. Now, some of the judgments have fallen on the earth up to this point in the vision that John received 1,900 years ago. But, you know, as we look at this today, I want us to stop a moment and think a little bit differently than we might when we look at a passage like this. Have you ever thought about what you might do if you could have warned somebody about some pending or impending disaster? I've often thought about that. We like to fantasize about the idea of being able to go back in time or send a message into the past to warn ourselves or warn someone about what might happen. I think about 9-11. I think about what we might have done if there was any way we could have known that that was going to happen and who we would have warned and how many people we would have told. Of course, we would have told everyone. Probably no one would have believed us, but... We would have taken that message and broadcast it as much as people would listen or receive it. Some might have listened, some might not have listened, but certainly anyone who perished in the towers would have appreciated a warning. Well, a, a, a tragedy of monumental proportions is going to happen one day on this earth. And the tragedy is that many men and women will not be prepared when Christ returns. And as Christians, what we're trying to do is warn them. Now, unlike 9-11, where there was a specific date, we don't know where this date will fall in history. We don't know when it will happen. We don't know if it will happen in our lifetime. We know this. It will happen. Amen? And there's sort of a mixed reaction. For me, part of it is this. Part of it is I want to warn as many people as possible so that they're not caught unawares. And the other part of me is like, let's get this thing happening. Like, tomorrow's fine. Today's, you know, maybe after Memorial Day, you know, on Tuesday, you know. Now, that's not a prophecy. 
Because we know that there's going to be seven years of tribulation leading up to the moment that Christ returns. But it is interesting that when you think about that, are, are, if you take a moment, do I think about others or do I think about myself? Or both. I think about how glorious it will be for us, for those of us who love Christ, but I also think about how awful and tragic, eternally devastating it will be for those that don't know Christ. So, this morning we want to look at the Word, and we want to look at it from this standpoint. We're being giving, given intel, information in advance, but not so that we can sit back and say, oh boy, I can't wait till that day comes. We're actually being told something that is part of the gospel message. We often talk about this. Christ died. Christ rose again. He ascended into heaven. And we also say he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's, that's the, the, the snapshot of the gospel message. And that coming again to judge the living and the dead is what we're going to talk about today. And we oftentimes focus on this and not on the death of Christ and the resurrection, if we get too into prophecy. And then sometimes we forget and don't focus on the fact that this wicked world will be judged. Now, we've been talking a lot about that these last few weeks. So this morning, I want us to set our hearts, let's calibrate our hearts, to be God-centered but others-focused as we receive this information that this might motivate us. Maybe some of you are thinking about going on a missions trip and hearing this might push you over the edge. Maybe some of you are thinking about serving in ministry or sharing the gospel with your family or friends, maybe this holiday weekend. And this realization, this picture, this vision might just be that final kick over the line where you say, you know, I'm going to say something because I want to be sure that everyone that I know receives an appropriate warning. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we open this glorious portion of Scripture today, We acknowledge that we know the truth. And for us, this is a hope. This is an anticipation. This is a glorious truth that we'll experience in the future. For others, it's a myth, a fairy tale that people don't believe in. For some, they flat out reject it in favor of sin and selfishness, even rejecting Christ outwardly. But there are many out there that either don't know the truth or maybe maybe they've been around religion so much of their lives that they miss this truth. Or it hasn't been stressed to them. Or they just are going on about their life, not realizing that you are coming again. So, Lord, this morning, may you give us insight. May you give us wisdom. May you give us the ability to perceive what it is you're saying to us through the power of your spirit. And through the teaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by reading verses 11 through 16 in chapter 19. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war, and his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are written many, excuse me, on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, quoting from Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, if at this point in our study, and you've been here through most of it, I have to explain who this is, then I haven't done a very good job. 
And I would even go so far as to say, you know, you're in a Christian church that teaches the gospel from the Bible, and you know Jesus Christ is the center of everything we do. It shouldn't be too difficult to figure out that this is a picture of Jesus Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead. There needs to be no explanation, but maybe some application. You see, John saw heaven standing open, and I want to start by saying this. The opening of heaven is always a prelude to something. When heaven opens, something's about to happen, and this is a prelude to God's judgment on the earth. It shows that he's about to destroy his enemies, and there are many enemies of Christ. I've been reading some articles lately that have been greatly disturbing about how people that flat-out openly worship Satan are embracing certain portions of our society, like the LGBT on and on and on community, those people who are confused, having been for the large part rejected by the organized church, and even more so lately accepted by the apostate church, are confused. They don't know what the truth is, and they're being told different things, and what they hear sometimes from the church is, we don't love them, and that, you know, God hates them, and that's not true at all. But Satanists are openly saying that, that God loves them the way they are. And their God, of course, is Satan. Think about that for a minute. You have people who are wicked and hate God, embracing sinners and celebrating their sin. Do you see the insidious nature of that decision on the part of a group of people? That their motivation is to destroy them? You understand that, right? Telling, telling little children that they can be confused about who they are, it's an insidious, satanic, demonic way of thinking. It's designed to destroy the lives of those that embrace it. See, we're, we're against those things because it hurts people, not because we don't love the people who are doing those things. In fact, we, we pity them. We have mercy and grace in our hearts because we understand the world is telling them something that isn't true. On so many levels, our world is saying things that aren't true, and people are just eating it up. I feel very badly for certain minority communities who are being lied to and told things that aren't true about their culture and their background, promises of reparations and things that will never happen in order to just merchandise them, take advantage of them and gain their votes. There should be a movement in our country to support people from all backgrounds, especially those disadvantaged communities. There should be, but that's not the answer. Lip service and telling people that, oh, we're going to do this for you, we're going to do that for you. So you understand, heaven opens up. And when heaven opens up, God gets involved. And I really want God to get involved now. But in the meantime, the world, the devil, demonic forces are working to destroy people's lives. So this is why we're against many of the things I just mentioned. There are many more isms or ways of thinking that are happening in our world today. And the church, in the media, it it just appears that we're against everything. And that's not always our fault. That's how we're portrayed. But sometimes it's our fault. What are you for? Are you for warning all of those individuals involved in some of those sinful behaviors of this day, that this day is coming? I hope so. Because that's the point. That's why we're here. That's why we're still on this planet. We are here to reach a wicked, debauched culture with the truth. They may reject it. But somebody needs to tell them the bridge is out before they get on the road and head full speed toward the river, plunging into it to their death. So when I see this, I think heaven's open up, you know. Heaven will open up at some point. God's judgment will come out. And before then, I would like for everyone in my life to at least understand there's a choice that needs to be made. 
By the way, there are four heavenly openings in Revelation. Four. We saw the first one in chapter 4. It was when there was a door standing open in heaven, and this was representative of the call to the church to come into the presence of God. And so John makes his way into the presence of God, caught up in the Spirit, and representative of all of us who will be caught up to the throne of God when Christ calls us home. Whether through death, rapture, whatever, we will find ourselves in the presence of God one day. There was also in chapter 11 an opening of God's temple in heaven, and this was for him to act on behalf of his people Israel. And he does. And so we talk a lot about the people of Israel in chapters 11 and 12. And then we get into chapter 13, 14. Then we get to 15. And there's an opening of God's temple in heaven for him to pour out his wrath on the earth. Now, there is a difference between God's wrath and his judgment. Understand this. There is a wrath that comes upon those that reject Christ. But there is the ultimate final judgment for those that have rejected Christ. And so we saw the wrath of God poured out on the earth. Now we see heaven standing open for Christ to return to earth. This is the judgment, which is sort of both positive and negative. Negative for those that reject Christ. Extremely positive for those that receive him and those that love him like we do. So it's, it's a mixed bag. There, there's good news and there's bad news. Bad news for some, good news for others. And that's why we need to warn people of this truth that this day will surely come. And isn't it interesting that Christ would come after seven years, with many prophecies predicting what will happen leading up to that, the rapture of the church, you, you can't predict when that will happen. You, you can look at the signs, but people have been doing that for decades, and, and we don't really know when Christ will come for his church. I have no idea, if I can say that outwardly and openly. I really have no idea. I don't know when that will happen. You know, that, that could happen, will happen, actually, at a moment that no one really expects it. So if you expect it and you wrote a book about when it will happen, that's not going to happen. Because we know no one knows, right? No one knows the day or the hour. But there is coming a day when Christ will come, and you can count it to the day. And that'll be seven years after a covenant is signed. There'll be a three-and-a-half-year mark. There'll be certain things that happen, different judgments, seal judgments, or seal, seals that are opened. There'll be trumpets. We've talked about them. There'll be bowls. There'll be a judging of the world system called Babylon the Great. There'll be all of these things happening. It's not as if anyone will miss it. And then there'll be angels warning people in the sky that it's going to happen. Don't take the mark of the beast. Everyone will receive a warning. No one's going to you know, go to their doctor, receive a shot, and say, Oh, you didn't realize this. I, that's the mark of the beast. You're not going to heaven. You know, as if God would allow something like that. You know, like, I think people just need to think things through. There is a mark of the beast. It's taken willingly, and it's not until the last days, the very last days, which we're not in. But the mark of the beast is a sign that you have rejected God, and you actually want to spend eternity with the devil and the the Antichrist and all of the fallen angels, and you've made a decision. So as we look at this, understand this much. You have a choice to make. You can make a choice today, if you haven't made it already, and the consequences of that choice may be insignificant or they may be severe. I I read another article within the last 24 hours uh, of a family in North Korea. And just imagine the demonic, sick, twisted mind that comes up with a punishment like this. That apparently the government found a couple in possession of a Bible. So what did they do? You would think they would go after the couple, imprison them. No, they imprisoned their infant son for life. That's the punishment. Think about that for a minute. 
If that isn't demonic, if that isn't satanic, I don't know what is. So, so you see, there may be consequences in your life. The rapture of the church may happen very far in the future, for all we know, and there could be consequences. There already have been consequences in our culture, but certainly there's consequences on, on today, the very day, in China, I'm sure in other nations, certainly North Korea. There are places where being a Christian will get you killed or tortured, or they won't kill you, but they'll just kill your entire family or imprison your infant son. So coming to Christ is no small decision, but it is the only decision, because if you don't, the consequences are more severe. So, listen, for thousands of years, mankind has been graciously allowed to defy God's will. You understand that? And some look at that and they consider that to be slowness, or that God doesn't care, or that God isn't coming at all. But we know better. Peter told us that. God's will will finally be done on earth as it is in heaven on this day that we're reading about today. From that moment on, for a thousand years, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Some of you grew up endlessly repeating that prayer. And there's nothing wrong with repeating that prayer or saying that prayer, as long as you actually understand that Jesus didn't tell you to do that told you to pray like this. These are the the bullet points of your prayer. But even if you did, even if you go through and you pray that prayer, there's nothing wrong. That's the word of God. But you open up by saying these very words that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then this is the moment where that prayer is answered. And not until then. You understand that? Not until this very moment will the answer to that prayer come. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Sometimes God's will is done in our lives. It's done in our culture. Many times God's will is accomplished in and through uh, a nation or at a time of revival. But that's not the answer to this prayer. This prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. The last time I checked, this isn't heaven. Certainly not. So every prayer prayed according to Jesus' teaching will finally be answered in this moment. And we also saw here a description of Jesus. And all of these are symbols, and they tell us something about our Lord and Savior. First, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the rider, the rider on the white horse. He's called faithful and true. Accurate descriptions of who he is. He is the faithful and true witness and the ruler of all God's creation, according to chapter 3, verse 14 of this very book. He is the true rider on the white horse. We were introduced to a false rider in chapter 6, verse 2, which we believe symbolized the Antichrist coming in place of Christ to deceive. But this is the true rider on the white horse who judges with justice, he judges, and makes war against the enemies of God and his people. And I'm okay with that. And you should be as well. God's grace and mercy are shown in the fact that it hasn't happened yet. But his justice will be shown in the fact that it will eventually happen, and it will. We're told his eyes are like blazing fire. He is the eternal Son of God whose feet are like burnished bronze, according to chapter 2, verse 18 of this very book. Because he is prepared to detect and deal with iniquity or sin. He doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss a thing. There's some people who are very perceptive. Children are very perceptive. Have you ever noticed they seem to know where you hide the cookies? They do. If there's chocolate in the house, you ask them, they'll tell you where it is, even if they can't reach it. Children are very perceptive. They see a lot of things. They see the things that that matter to them. And some people are tuning out in this world today. They don't even drive without texting. 
Some people are just in another world. They're in a trance. This is a time to be incredibly perceptive. Our Lord sees it all. He sees how we live. He sees, he knows how we think. He hears the words we say. Oh, here's a scary one. He hears the words I don't say. Because I'm not really so worried at this point in my life about the things I say because I've got a pretty good filter. Catch me at a bad moment, maybe. But it's the things I almost say that God knows and hears. And he knows the thoughts and the intents of my heart. He knows my uprisings, my downsittings, my, my goings from afar. That is, he knows where I was going before I changed my mind. He knows what I was thinking about before I said, oh, Lord, forgive me. I shouldn't have thought about that thing. So blazing fire is an accurate description of, of the eyes of Jesus Christ. He, it's scrutiny. It's the idea of scrutiny. You know, when you heat something up, the, 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 the things that stand in the way of seeing what's really there go away, and you see what's really there. The gold is refined, and what's left is the result of scrutiny. And that's what Jesus sees in the earth, but also in our hearts, and it's important to know that. We're also told that on his head are many crowns. He has authority over all the kingdoms of the earth, many crowns. Those crowns, they they signify this earth, this world belongs to him. And I know what you're thinking. How could that possibly be? How could something like North Korea exist? How could that story be true about that family and God have all the crowns? Well, because he has chosen to allow us for some period of time to experience the consequences in our world of sin and the rejection of his word. Now, I don't like it any more than you do, but it's still true. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God in his infinite grace and mercy is putting up with an awful lot. You think you're putting up with a lot, right? You drive home, you see all those signs celebrating wickedness. I drove past a church the other day. I think they're selling the building, which doesn't surprise me, but, oh, they left that rainbow flag out there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I have to see all of this. I have to be exposed to all this. You you watch TV. You you rent the Disney movie, which I hope you don't do anymore. You rent the Disney movie. Oh, who has two moms, two dads? Some of the things that are just insidiously thrown at us. And yes, this world is wicked, and we're being exposed to a lot of this. So you're grieved. You are. And you think, where is God? Why isn't God dealing with this? Okay, that's just me, right? Maybe you don't feel that way. But that's how I feel like every day. And I come to a scripture like this and say, well, well, wait a minute. He doesn't have to find those crowns. He doesn't have to conquer anyone to have those crowns. He has them. So either his judgments are true and just or they're not. So here's what I've come to. Here's the centeredness and the peace I've come to in my life. Everything is going exactly as planned. Can you say amen? You know, some of us here at the church, we train together. And one of the most comforting things our sensei say to us, you're struggling, you're working, you're just trying to progress in your, in your, in your martial arts. And our senseis will say, you know, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. It's so comforting. It doesn't happen all the time, but when our senseis say that, I just think, oh, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You know that that is true? We are exactly where we're supposed to be. I'm not talking about in church. I'm saying in time. This is an exciting time to be a Christian. Oh, it's a challenging time. You notice there aren't too many faux Christians anymore? In the 80s, everybody was a Christian. Everybody. 
Hollywood stars who were living, you know, in whatever way they wanted. Musical artists, oh, yeah, you know, they're a Christian, you know. And you get the album, and then you find out how they live. And everybody was a Christian when it didn't cost you anything. But as of late, I have noticed that most of the people that claim the name of Christ are Christians. Imagine that. Was that perhaps a purifying work of the Holy Spirit with the blazing eyes of fire? Could, could God, in his infinite wisdom, have set in motion things in our world that would purify the church to the extent that we would be exactly what he's called us to be? I'm beginning to see the truth. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And so are you. And the world is exactly as God has ordained it to be. And I know that's hard to say because when you look at the world, it's a horrible place. We're still exactly where we're supposed to be. But this day will come. And while he has all of those crowns, there will come a day where he claims the authority that he already has over all of the kingdoms of the earth. And this is that moment. He also has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. I love stuff like this. It keeps me up at night. What? What does this mean? A name written. Wait a minute. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. God is salvation. What name? Well, I I read here, faithful and true. Well, that's more of an adjective than a noun, right? It's really describing who he is, not his name. You mean Jesus has a name that I don't know about? Yeah. What does that mean? What could that possibly refer to? Well, since I don't know what the name is, I can't tell you. So let's move on to the next point. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I still don't know what the name is, but I know this. This is what I do know. He is known to mankind by many names, but only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knows this name. There's something about Christ that we don't know. Well, there's probably a lot of things, but specifically something about him or something about who he is that our puny brains can't comprehend. The unknowable name, that's what I'm going to call it. The unknowable name speaks of his essential glory as the eternal son of God. You see, Jesus, before he became that child in the manger, that's the part of Christ we could never possibly understand. After all, why would he have become a man to live as a human being if we could? You see, you can't, we can't understand God. And you know what makes me sad when I think about that? There's lots of people out there truly seeking God and to know God. This God, our God, apart from Jesus. And they have no clue. Have you ever noticed some of the crazy things people come up with? Well, of course, they can't possibly know God apart from Jesus. You say, well, well, Pastor Tim, the Jews, they knew God. Did they really? Did they understand who he was? They knew God's word. They knew God's law. But the person of God? Not really. Because I got news for you. When Jesus came, the religious people, the people that knew the word of God better than anyone else, missed it. They fell short of the glory of God. Because they came up with a preconceived notion of what they thought God was or who God was. And when Jesus showed up, they said, are you kidding me? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You see... My heart breaks for the Buddhists and the Taoists and all those people out there, pagans and people who are involved in all different types of isms, who are truly seeking God apart from Jesus because they're never going to find him. Because, as we know, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And the only way that we can understand and experience God, truly, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is through the person of Jesus Christ. 
And we like to say that almost exclusively. Well, you can't know God apart from Jesus. Like, you have to have a special card that says, well, you have access. It's not even about that. Jesus reveals God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to us in a way that our minds can receive and understand. The character and the nature. The name in the ancient world, the name was the character and the nature of a person. It represented them. So the name, the character and nature of God can only be guessed at unless you know Jesus. But because we know Jesus, hallelujah, we know God. So you see, anyone apart from Christ can't know him. It isn't even just because we like to be exclusive. It's just the reality that without Christ, you can't know God. You can't come to the Father but by him. And without the Spirit, it's impossible to know him. What's the Spirit? We talked about it last week. The spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. I always thought about it this way. The Holy Spirit is basically a a, a signpost with an arrow pointing to Jesus. Never brings attention to himself. The Holy Spirit always brings attention to Jesus. And, And even God points us, God the Father points us to Jesus because we can't know God. We can't see God. We can't be in God's presence, but we can know Jesus. So we started, really, this study in the last verse of last week where it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're actually saying this out loud, right? Christ is God. Christ is the way to know God, the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ is the only way to come to God. Does that sound exclusive? It is. But not because it's exclusive, because it's the truth. And aren't we glad that Christ came to earth as a man to reveal to us who God is? So yes, there's lots about Christ we could never know, and maybe we'll never know. Maybe. But this point in this text shows us something. This unknowable name, it speaks about the essential glory of God as the eternal Son of God that we'll never really truly be able to wrap our brains around. He's also dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, I have two theories here. could be his own blood, because he certainly shed his blood for us. There's also a scene in Isaiah that talks about him coming to Basra and judging his enemies before he heads to Jerusalem. And we'll see it in our text later on here where he treads the wine press of the fury of God's wrath and could be the blood of his enemies too. More than likely, it's his own blood, a reference to the blood that he shed, the price of our salvation. And I love this. This is the best, right? His name is the word of God. Now, we just said he has a name you can't understand, right? One that you could never know, that no one knows but God himself. Something about Jesus you could never understand. So he becomes a man so he can understand God, but he also gives us his word because he is the word of God, the incarnate son of God who gave his life for us. And we know that scripture that says in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Word was with God. You drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling place, set up camp really, tabernacled with us, chose to live amongst us. So John tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 1, who the Word of God is. The Word of God. This scripture tells us his name is the Word of God. The incarnate Son of God. So when you study the Word, back to what we talked about last week, the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. You're going to set up a little equation. Spirit of prophecy equals testimony of Jesus. They're the same. The Word of God is the testimony of Jesus. If you read the word of God and you don't see Jesus, you're missing the point. You really are. Recently, I was hanging out with the kids and they were reading one of those Waldo books. 
And when I was younger, they had these Waldo books. And it was just, you were looking for Waldo, just Waldo, just find Waldo. Now there's all different types of people that you're looking for in these pictures, right? It's not just Waldo. But you're looking at these pictures. They're very confusing pictures, and it's like our world. You're just trying to, what in the world is going on here? There's Oddlaw. He's like the Antichrist of Waldo. You can find him. Parents know what I'm talking about. He has a dog. But as I look at those pictures, I'm looking for one thing in all of this confusion. I'm I'm looking for Waldo. I'm looking for Jesus in this world. Sometimes it's a little difficult to find him. I, I, I I find some things that try to pretend to be Jesus, but it's not Jesus. There's a lot of things to look at in this world. And I keep coming up empty every time I find anything other than Jesus. So what do I do? Oh, I'm going to try to find God and Jesus through meditation. That's like looking for Waldo. I open up the Word of God, hits me in the face. There's Jesus. He's the Word of God. So if you're looking for Jesus, and I pray you are, you need to look in the Word of God. And that's why we study the Word of God here on Sundays and Wednesdays and whenever we get together in our small groups because it's there that we find Jesus. He is the Word of God. And here's the good news, more good news. Actually, it's all good news. Verse 14, we're told the armies of heaven followed him riding white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. We know who this is. This is us. Where are the armies? We're in the army of heaven. We come with him when he returns which is another reason why I believe certainly the rapture of the church will take place before this event. The armies of heaven, the redeemed of mankind in heaven, have now become, as we talked about last week, the bride of the Lamb. His bride will be at his side as he returns to rule and reign on the earth, and we are the bride of Christ. His bride, as we saw last week, will be clothed in his righteousness, completely pure and sinless for all eternity. That's a good word, amen? That's our eternal destiny, to be the bride of Christ. To come with him to rule and reign at his side. We're also told that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That sounds pretty brutal. But you know something? It's the word of God. It's just another picture or symbol of the word of God. We were told in chapter 2, verse 12 of this very book that He has the sharp, double-edged sword as his voice is the very word of God. So he not only is the living word, he, he, he is the word of God. He also, when he speaks, speaks the word of God as God. And that is how he destroys his enemies. Pause. Pause button. That is how he destroys his enemies. Rewind. That is how he destroys his enemies, with the word of God. Do you understand that the word of God is alive and powerful? That according to Hebrews, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the joint and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's a scalpel so precise. It's like those microsurgeries that they do. It's so precise that when you begin to to, to dissect the thoughts and the intents of your heart, it's able to split an atom, if you will. It's so clear when you read the Word of God what's right and what's wrong. 
So what does the devil do? Well, he's got to get rid of that. So the first thing he does, he goes after the church. He says, you don't need the word of God. The word of God is offensive to people. You don't want to teach the word of God. It's much better off if you have motivational speakers in the pulpit that make everybody feel good. That, that'll, that, your church will be filled with people if you just get up. And listen, don't talk about sin because that offends people. Don't talk about the cross because no one wants to hear that. And they don't believe in the resurrection anyway. So just make them feel good. And then at the end, talk about Jesus. Mention the name of Jesus. Not the Jesus we worship, but some false Jesus. And then you can tell them they're saved and they'll keep coming back. That's the devil's plan. And these entertainment churches are filled with people who don't know Jesus. They know the name, but they don't know the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, you don't know the name of God. You don't know who God is. And you never heard from him. How can you be saved without the word of God? Faith comes by hearing? Well, that's, you see, that's where I sometimes wish we were a Pentecostal church. <laughs> Faith comes by hearing? The word of God. I'm going to give you, it's word of God. That's the answer. Faith comes by hearing? The word of God. So why do we stress the word of God here? Because faith comes by hearing the word of God. Because he is the word of God. Because it's the sharp two-edged sword. Because it's the only weapon we need. It's our defense. It's the power of God for those who believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's everything. The word of God is everything. It's everything. So that's why we study the word of God. The whole word of God. You know, we're, and Wednesdays we're finishing up our study in the book of Job. Sometimes you need the patience of Job to study Job. Or teach it. But when you study the word of God... You're transformed. The sharp two-edged sword changes you. It's like a scalpel. It cuts the things out of our life that need to go. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. So we think we're okay, and then we read the Word of God, and we say, I'm not okay. I remember when I first came to Christ, it was because I was going to a Bible study. Imagine that. And I hear the Word of God, and I was doing so many things that were wrong that I thought were right. And then when I heard 1 Corinthians taught, I say, wow, I'm wrong. And then I had a choice. Am I going to get right with God? So I made the decision, you know what? Whatever that book says, it's right and I'm wrong. And then I found out along the way, there were a lot of things I didn't know I was doing were wrong. I was doing in ignorance and, or not doing. And then I found out the word of God, it brought me to faith. Some people run from it. But the word of God comes out of the mouth of Christ when he returns. And it's the very word of God that strikes down the nations. We're told in other scriptures that he's just, uh, the enemies of God are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. But here he just opens up his mouth. This is the same mouth that spoke, let there be light. I am that I am. What words will he have to say? Probably not much. But that day will come when he'll speak. So the battle of Armageddon is not a battle or a conflict. It's a bloodbath, as we'll see in just a minute. He will destroy the nations of the earth with the sword of the Spirit. By the way, in Ephesians we learn the word of God is called in the armor. It's actually the sword of the Spirit. By the way, a sword can be used as a shield, but it can also be used as a weapon. You know, I've been training in weapons now for the last three years, and I'll tell you what. They're defensive and they're offensive. They're both. They're never just one. The word of God defends truth. It defends us from the lies of the enemy, but it also allows us to win the battle. Victory is ours in Christ through the word of God, and he is the word of God. 
He's also going to come and rule the world with an iron scepter. Now, this is Psalm 2, verse 9. It's a messianic psalm. We've talked about it. We've studied it. It's come up before in this, in this book. And, uh, and, we, and, it's, and the reason I've mentioned it, because it was predictive of the day Messiah would come. Ruling with an iron scepter, does that sound like a democracy? You don't need democracy when Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth. I mean, we need democracy today because people are corrupt. But in that day, we won't want that. We'll want Christ ruling and reigning over the world. And he's going to. And I love the Iron Scepter because it kind of tells me something. It tells me, like, if there's a little protest during the millennium, a couple of people get some signs, you know, and they, they start protesting. They start saying, well, you know, we don't agree with this. You know what the Iron Scepter means, right? That ain't going to happen. So I'm looking forward to that day, to be honest with you. I'm looking forward to the day where, guys, there's no, there's no right to protest. Now, in our country today, I'm really glad we do have that right. But the day will come where we don't need to have that right because Christ will rule and reign. Amen? So that's going to be a good day. Some of those signs are so offensive that people hold up today that I'll be glad to know that I won't have to see that for a thousand years. So he's also, in verse 15, going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. I mentioned this already, Isaiah 63. It's a, it's a picture. A winepress a person gets in a wine press, they smush the grapes, right? They smash them, they, 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 they press the grapes to make wine. That's a symbol anyone reading this, or even us, we understand. It could be because of this that his robe is dipped in blood, or it may just be a symbol that's given us so that we understand just what a bloody mess this day will be for the enemies of God. We know according to chapter 16 of this book, that the enemies of God are going to be gathered outside the city of Jerusalem in the valley of Megiddo, we call Armageddon. So we say the battle of Armageddon. We imagine there's tanks. We imagine there's missiles and nuclear weapons. Here's the word of God out of the mouth of the word of God that destroys the enemies of the word of God. It's a bloodbath. It's the end. There's no battle. It's over before it begins. Now, the wicked will be trampled in the winepress outside the city. Chapter 14 told us that of this book. Do you want your loved ones, your co-workers, your family members to be tread in the winepress of the wrath of God's fury? No. That's why you share with them the truth that's in this chapter. You can't make them believe it. You can influence them. By the way, the power of influence, it's really something. Just live your life in Christ. We talked about this last week. Live your life for Christ. Allow Christ to live through you, and people who are seeking God will find him. The people who are rejecting God will reject you. That's just the way it goes. We can't control that. You know, God could, but he doesn't. He gives everyone free will, so don't be disappointed when Uncle Harry at the barbecue on Monday doesn't want to hear about that Jesus stuff. Or your co-worker tells you, you know, uh, I like you and everything, but please don't bring that Bible stuff into our conversation. You, you, can't, you can't make people believe. You can only influence them. But we want to because we don't want them to be in this wine press of God's fury and wrath. We're also told that on his robe and on his thigh he has written, and these are wonderful titles, that's what they are, titles, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The idea is that there are kings and lords in this world, the, the power brokers of this world, but he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? 
Those titles identify him as the son of man, not just the son of God, the rightful heir of all things. He died to save us, but he owns this planet. It's his. The crowns are on his head. Remember that one day he wore a crown of thorns and was hung on a cross, only to sit upon the throne of God. And this is the day where he exerts that power and authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Verses 17 and 18 John tells us, I saw an angel standing in the sun, that is, standing very high up, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Verses 17 and 18. This angel invited the birds, and I found this interesting because there are still birds alive on the earth. Apparently, a lot of the life on this planet will be wiped out during these seven years, but not all of it. The angel invited the birds, still alive on the earth, to gather together for this great supper of God. I imagine these are carrion birds, vultures, crows, that kind of thing. They were about to eat the flesh of the enemies of God and his people, so this is a literal judgment. This isn't just figurative. This is actually going to happen. It's going to be a bloody mess. The great supper of God is the result of the battle of Armageddon. It's a supper for the birds. These people are just wiped out. And no one needs to be there. Wouldn't it be great if no one showed up? But sadly, many people will to defy God. And then John saw the enemies of God in verses 19 through 21. We learn this. Then, John writes, I saw the beast. you remember the beast? He's the, he's the Antichrist. He's the world ruler. And the kings of the earth, they were the ones that served under him. And their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. That's Christ in us, his bride. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them, that is the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now the rest of them, that's all the people that followed them, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. The word of God. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Oh, that's a pretty ugly scene, isn't it? Nasty scene. Can you imagine what would happen with CGI if they tried to put that on film? It would definitely be rated R. That is not a pretty sight. The beast, the kings of the earth, their armies, they're foolishly attempting to make war against Jesus and the saints. That's the same Jesus that's in control today, by the way. So all of this foolishness, oh, we're going to get rid of God. We're going to push him out of our culture. You know, we're not going to allow the churches to meet. We're not going to, we're going to try to destroy the church. Oh, we're going to lock up a little infant to keep the rest of the people from owning Bibles. All of that is, is futile because God is in control. Now, the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The beast from the sea we talked about in chapter 13 referred to that Gentile world ruler located in a Eurocentric kingdom in the last days. It doesn't exist today, not in the form it will ultimately. He'll rule the earth. He's going to be a world ruler, and he's going to be destroyed in this moment when when Christ returns, and he just utters the word of God, and this being, this demonic creature, is thrown into the lake of fire. 
And of course, the false prophet, the Antichrist that deceived the wicked, which we believe will probably be a Middle Eastern ruler posing to be Christ, but we don't know all the details. He's also going to be destroyed. This individual performed miraculous signs on behalf of the first beast, we were told, and he used those signs to deceive people, to delude those who had received the mark of the beast or pledged their allegiance to this ruler. They had worshipped this image of the first beast and rejected Christ. And now, both of these individuals are thrown into the lake of fire. I'm okay with that. The lake of fire. It's eternal hell. You know, we sometimes talk about hell, and we mean Hades, or Sheol, the place of the dead. But we'll see at the end of the book, in a couple studies, that all those who are in hell, or Hades, as we really should properly refer to it, are cast into the lake of fire, which is really hell. Eternal hell. The second death, we've talked about it before, we'll talk about it in chapter 20, the ultimate destination of all those that reject Christ. So the rest of God's enemies, we're told, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, destroyed his enemies with his voice, the true word of God. All these birds, they just gorge themselves on their flesh. So in the end, the battle of Armageddon is more a bloodbath than a battle. But I ask the worship team to come up and I end our study this morning with the same question. If you had the opportunity to communicate in advance of a terrible tragedy that someone was about to be in a car accident or a horrible terrorist attack or someone was to to, to die some terrible death because of some circumstances, and you knew in advance it was going to happen, what would you do about it? If you knew, like we know, that this day is coming, who would you tell? How would you live your life? What would be your goals and your aspirations? What would you look to accomplish in this life? I don't know how you read that chapter and not change direction, if... The direction you're going in was very selfish and self-motivated. If your goal in life is making money, and you read this chapter with us today, how can can that wash? How can you you continue? We have to make money to live, but how can that be your goal? Or pleasure, for that matter. You want to throw yourself into pleasure, but there's there's people that are going to die on this terrible day. Many will die leading up to this terrible day. So the question I have is, do you know where you'll be? Okay. You've given your life to Christ. Wonderful. You don't have to worry about this day. You're on the white horse with the fine linen, clean, marching with Jesus to set up his kingdom. That's great. That's probably the first thing you need to take care of, obviously. But it doesn't end there. Because now you have a message and a truth that you either believe or you don't. And I hope you believe it. And if you do believe it, everyone in your life that doesn't is heading for this disaster unless they choose to respond to the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So I would venture a guess that every one of us, if we have a priority list, need to move whatever was in spot number one out and replace it with this. As a Christian, as a born-again believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, your single most important priority is sharing the gospel including the part where Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. That's what we focused on today. But the whole message is this. He came and died on the cross for our sins, 
rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. But here's the final note. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Lord, Heavenly Father, if we've been distracted, if we've allowed the evils of this world and the the news cycle to depress us and get us off purpose and direct us away from this important priority, if we look at the world and we only think about what's in it for us, then, Lord, maybe we need a recalibration. Maybe we need a course correction. Maybe we need to change the priorities in our life to put more time in our schedule, more rest in our schedule, that we might meditate on your word, not empty thoughts. May we ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? Do I go on that mission trip? Do I serve in that ministry? Do I plant that church? Do I open my home for a home Bible study? Do I speak to my neighbor? Do I make sure that my children know the truth? Do I share it with my parents and my loved ones? Oh, Lord, help us. We need a calibration, a recalibration. We get so distracted, and that's the devil's chief weapon against us. That and keeping us out of your word. It's hard to be distracted when we read a scripture like this today. And we celebrate that this is going to happen one day. But if I might, Lord, with your heart, I pray it wouldn't happen before the ones we love come to know the truth. As much as I want to see this happen like today, May those that are still on the fence, those that are seeking, those that are currently rejecting, may they find their way to you. Because we know that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you for this study. Thank you for correcting our hearts and our minds and giving us purpose, a renewed sense of purpose as to what's important and what's not. We ask that you'd fill us with your spirit and empower us to bring this message to a world that needs it and not be dissuaded from sharing that message because of pressure or intimidation. May we give our lives to share the truth that you gave your life that we might live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.